seated for a minute. That's a powerful song. You know, there's a story in the Gospels of Jesus who's having a meal with a bunch of people. And many of them were real religious guys. And a woman who, the Bible says, had a reputation began to wash his feet. She was known in the community as one of those women. And others around that crowd kind of sneered and thought, this guy can't really be a prophet because he wouldn't allow this type to come and let alone be in his prayer, let alone touch him. And Jesus knew what was in their hearts because he, he's God. God kind of knows stuff like that. And he said, in essence, if you knew, if you knew what this woman was forgiven of, if you had any concept of where she was and how she has received me, He said, I came in here and none of you even offered me a drink of water. None of you offered me anything. And yet she's come to wash my feet, to serve me. Why? Because of an abundant sense of thankfulness. You see, religion will cause you to be cynical, complacent, critical, But I think sometimes we have to be reminded. I love that word. You know, I say it all the time. Calibrate. Get us back set to remember the grace that God has given to us. Some of you here today have come in here and there's things that you bring in your life. Maybe things that even happened this week that you think if anybody knew, if anybody knew, if they contemplated Well, God knows everything about us. And the gospel, in its very fundamental core, is God extending mercy to those who don't deserve it. That's all of us. And in fact, that's the scandal of the cross. How, you know, if you just preach this grace stuff, everybody's just going to, they're just going to do what they want. Well, maybe. But those who really know what the grace of God and how it has changed their life, that they can come before the God who spoke worlds into existence, the holy, holy God, and be received without shame, without condemnation, and be received into his very presence because of Jesus. And we are covered by what Jesus has accomplished. Quit trying to add to what Jesus has done. Quit trying to just do some good stuff to kind of tip the scales. You can't do it. Jesus has paid it all. All to Him. Amen? And so as we sing this again, if you find yourself feeling a little religious and a little distracted, and you're a believer, you're born again, you've... have had an encounter with God. 
where would you be if God had not rescued us? Where would we be? And so as we sing this, let it just be truly a heart of praise and thanksgiving as we sing this with a, not just going through a song, but, but singing it to a God who has bestowed upon us him very, his very self to the least of these. Paul said, I'm the chief. If you want to give a list of sinners, put me at the top of the list. You may feel today that you're so unworthy. You, sh- you just, even there, you just the sense of being in here and singing, you, you may think that if anybody knew what was going on in my life secretly or what I've done, because the enemy is, he's a good archivist. Have you figured that out? He loves to dredge up the past. You ever sometimes find yourself struggling in worship and you hear the enemy? I don't mean something bizarre. But, I mean, you just sense that sense of, like, what are you, who are you fooling? God doesn't love you. If he loved you, you'd have a bigger house, a bigger car. Isn't that what some people think? You wouldn't be sick. You wouldn't be going to doctors if he really loved you. If they only knew. God knows, and he says, even while we were yet sinners, he says, I know everything about you. In fact, Psalm 139 says, while you were in your mother's womb, God knit us together, put us together. He knows all our complexities, all our emotions. He knows everyone who's disappointed you and hurt you and and abandoned you. And he knows your struggle to find significance and worth. And he knows all of that. And I believe that God creates that destitute that hunger in us even as believers sometimes because in that hunger in that desire it drives us to the one the only one that can fill us saint augustine says said our hearts are restless till we find rest in thee restless hearts today find rest i'm not talking about sleeping some of you understand that in church but we're not going there our rest I'm content, I'm satisfied, I'm joyful. I can do all things through Christ because of all that he's given to me. The least of the deserving, least of humanity is me. And God, God, the God of gods has come into my life and said, I declare, I don't care what mama said, I don't care what daddy said, I don't care what your third grade teacher said, you're of infinite worth to me. In fact, I'm going to prove it. I'm going to come and give myself and die to show you how worth I consider you to be to me. I think we underestimate that, don't we? That we really mean something to God. Let's stand back up and let's stand. If you can stand and you're physically able, I know not everybody can and I understand that. But if you can, let's sing this again and just let the words just come out of your heart as we worship the Lord this morning and thank Him that we're covered by His grace.
One of the resources I'm going to use for the next seven weeks is um, a book by Mark Batterson. He, how many of you ever read a book called the, uh, is it Prayer Circle uh, or something? Huh? Circle Maker, Circle maker thank you. Uh, and he's written a lot of other books. And several years back when I was teaching through the Gospel of John, uh, again, I noticed, again, these wonderful seven miracle signs through there. And I thought, man, I'd love to just go back and spend time just on each of those seven signs. And can you believe it? Some guy came out with a book on the seven, those seven miracle signs. Maybe so, man, I'm going to sue him. No. Uh, but he, this is a book called The Grave Robber. And what he does in this book is he teaches and writes on these seven miraculous signs. And so uh, throughout this series, I'm going to be using some quotes and some things from this. Don't think I'm plagiarizing. I'm not doing that. But this is just a resource, and if you're not reading anything currently, this may be something you may want to pick up. But uh, we'll, uh, we'll uh, quote from him time to time with some various insights. One of the things about when you study the New Testament and distractions is you find that Jesus, right at the beginning of his ministry, you had a group of individuals that were distracted into their own stuff and their own agenda. And here was the Messiah, the prophesied Messiah who had come. He was in their midst, right? He was, he was doing miracles. He was doing signs and wonders. And yet you had a group of individuals that were religious. They were kind of the, the ones that we would say they were the Bible folks, even though the Bible wasn't you know, put together at that point. They were the ones, put it this way, that if anybody should have recognized who Jesus was, that had the information, it should have been these folks. The Pharisees, and there was another group, the Sadducees. And, but the Pharisees are primarily the ones that Jesus is constantly, sometimes they'll refer, refer to as uh, uh, legal scholars or, 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 or lawyers, but not lawyers in the sense they were scholars of religious law. But we'll just call them Pharisees for simplicity. And even though Jesus was doing the miraculous, they were, they were clueless. They were so distracted. In fact, one of the miracles that we'll look at is in chapter 5 of John when Jesus comes uh, to the, uh, uh, into the, the area where there was this pool of water where they believed, kind of had a superstitious belief that if you could get into the water when it was stirred, that they had a superstitious idea that the angels stirred the water. It really didn't. It was just the, the, the uh, water stream that was stirring it. But they had this superstition, kind of like we have these weird stupor, superstitions. Maybe they're superstitions, but uh, superstitions. And, and he had been lame, couldn't walk for 38 years, never, never walked in his life. And Jesus healed him. Pretty dramatic. Everybody knew this guy. They, walked, they went by him all the time. Healed him. And what did the Pharisees complain about? You did it on the Sabbath. What? I mean, the man has never walked, Julian, a day in his life. And what are they griping about? You didn't do it the religious order and system that we believe you should do. Do you realize the guy has never walked? And yet, what are they doing? They're complaining that Jesus broke the Sabbath. They weren't focused on the Messiah. Here, Jesus was performing the miraculous in their midst. But where, were they, where, were, where was their focus? 
on their own stuff. They were distracted. God, I believe, does the miraculous, and He does the miraculous in our life. And so, this series called The Grave Robber, and you saw in that little video, the reason it's called The Grave Robber is because the last miracle was He robs the grave of Lazarus. He calls forth the man from the dead. And so we call him the grave robber. And we're going to look at these seven signs in the Gospel of John. Today is only introduction. In just a moment, we're going to have communion together. But I want to just take a few moments before we begin to just introduce this and whet your appetite so that when we begin next week and looking at the first miraculous sign, which is in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, where he turns water into... All right, we all know that. Uh, chapter 4, the second miracle. Chapter 5, the third miracle. There's two of them in chapter 6. Okay? And in, uh, also in chapter 9 and 11, so that's the total of seven signs. Sign 1, he turns water into wine. In chapter 4, the, he heals a government official's son. No, don't even have to touch him, he just does it. He heals a crippled man we talked about in chapter 5. That's the third sign miracle. In chapter 6, he does two. He feeds over 15,000. Now, I know it says 5,000, but tradition was they only counted usually the men. So you add wives and some kids, he probably fed over over 15,000 with a few loaves and a few fish. Pretty, pretty big deal, right? Also in chapter 6, he walks on water. Chapter 9, he gave sight to a man born blind, never could see in his life. He heals him. And then, of course, chapter 7, he calls forth Lazarus from the dead. Just to kind of, again, as introduction, we want to kind of make sure that we put a little biblical framework around everything that we do. And we are, again, this is not a study of this book. It's a study of this book. We're just using sometimes a little bit of stuff here that may open a window and highlight, but we're looking at the Word of God, and so that's why, we're again, we're going to be focusing the Gospel of John for the next seven weeks. But to just give us a little framework, when we talk about signs, why, was, why were signs in the ministry of Jesus, why was that a big deal? What, what, were, what was the purpose that God wanted to do with these sign miracles? Let me give you three little thoughts to kind of keep as a frame of reference of why signs were done by Jesus. There was probably more, but I just brought it down to three, and they all start with the letter A, which is a good Baptist thing to do, right? Start with the same letter. Some of you got that, some of you didn't. Okay, first, first thing is they were to draw attention, to draw attention. Attention to what? attention that Jesus is the Messiah, that He actually is the one that God sent. Now, if you know history, you know that just like today, you've got people that claim to be Messiah. They claim to be the prophet that God has sent. You've got all sorts of people that come through the corridors of history and time claiming to be the one that God has sent. Okay? Super. Let me see you raise somebody from the dead. Then you got my attention, right? You, the miraculous signs were to draw attention to Jesus. Now, that wasn't necessarily the primary uh, 
thing that he, was, that he did the miracles for, but it was one of the reasons that miracles, that when he did these things, it attracted men and women. Why were they attracted in droves to Jesus? It wasn't because they really loved the three-point outline he gave at the Sermon on the Mount. They were drawn to these miracles they heard about. They had a cousin who saw him over here. You know, they heard about these miracles. Remember when this guy named Nicodemus in John 3? John is just filled with so much wonderful stuff. But remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus came at night. Nick at night. You know, it's a good sermon title. He came at night. Diana liked that one. Thank you. Hey, good to see you. You had an accident yesterday, but glad you're here, dear. He said nobody, he acknowledged. Now, this is just after the wedding at Cana, so I think there was a lot more going on when we come to chapter 3 because Nicodemus acknowledged that no one could do the signs that you do or the miracles that you do unless they are sent from God. So here you have Nicodemus who, by the way, is a big-shot Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court, and he's acknowledging that it's you must be sent from God. Pretty big statement given his you know, education and his reputation. That's kind of why he's sneaking in at night so nobody sees him. He says, no one could do the miracles and the signs that you do unless they're sent from God. So the miracles drew attention to Jesus. Secondly, not only did they draw attention to Christ, but the miracles authenticated that he was Messiah. They authenticated or they proved that he was who he said he was. Uh, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, in Luke's gospel, goes into the synagogue in his hometown and he opens the scroll, it's given to him, and he opens it up to the prophet Isaiah. And he reads from the prophet Isaiah this passage. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, it says, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's saying this, reading this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because... He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden and proclaim, preach the favorable year of the Lord. He, I mean, pretty radical thing. Here he goes in his hometown. You ever go back to a a high school reunion? You know, and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a little intimidating because they all kind of know who you are. And he's standing there in his hometown synagogue, probably, again, where his earthly father, Joseph, took him and was bar mitzvahed and part of the whole uh, Sabbath worship. And here he's standing before them now. Oh, yeah, that's the carpenter's son. Let's, let's give him an opportunity. And he has the audacity to read this statement from Isaiah and says, hey, That's talking about me. Like, what? This this is Joseph's son. I got a table in my house that's wobbly because his dad built it. I don't think Jesus ever built any junk, but maybe dad. I don't know. He wasn't perfect. We don't know. (laughs) Like, who is this guy? Who is he? And he says, 
Imagine me coming in here and saying, hey, you know that prophecy in Ezekiel? It's talking about me. You're like, this guy's a loon. Call the elders and get that guy off the stage quickly. But why did he... Anybody could say that, but the miracles authenticated or proved. In John 7.31, there's a statement there that the people expected the Messiah to perform the miraculous, that when the Messiah came, he would do these type of miracles. So they drew attention, they authenticated, and the third little reminder as we're going to be looking at these miracles is they amplify, they amplify. What is when something, when you have an amplifier, it makes something louder. When you amplify something, you're expanding the sound or vision or concept. Jesus is amplifying their view of who God is. He's amplifying their understanding of the nature of God. The miracles didn't just reveal the power of God, but they revealed His person. The miracles of Jesus in the miracles of Christ that He does, we catch a glimpse, we're amplified in what God is like that he's sympathetic, that he's compassionate, that he's not uh, blinded to human suffering and our need. Jesus would even talk about in Matthew 6 and another in his Sermon on the Mount, he would even talk about that your Heavenly Father knows everything you need even before you know you need it. He says, why are you chasing... We talked about this last week with worry. Why are you chasing after... What you're going to eat and drink and wear, does not your heavenly Father know that you need all these things? So Jesus, in His ministry, He is amplifying. This is what God is like. God did not intend for His creation, for His people, to be diseased, harassed, suffering. That was not God's intent. But because of, the, of an interloper, of sin. But Jesus amplifies that God has changed things by sending Jesus. So it gives attention, it authenticates, it amplifies. Now let me ask you this question. What belief system does miracles have in your life? I suspect that often we have kind of cut the idea of miracles out of our life. Even though we pray, we ask God for needs in our life, we pray for others, but there's just still sometimes a struggle that we just, you know, we do it, but really deep down, if we're honest, I'm not sure we really believe it. I'm not sure we really embrace it. There's not a level of expectation that God actually might do something, right? And so what we often do is we just kind of cut that whole concept out of our, our life. I may have uh, shared this, I think I may have shared this uh, in another situation, but I remember uh, one time uh, when I was in a leadership meeting and it was with a group of people that really, you know, they weren't really, hadn't signed off that God was really that active and what was going on in the earth or whatever. And we were doing this kind of training of how you would counsel or minister to somebody. And so one of the questions in our little small group was, uh, you've been called and somebody's been diagnosed with some, a disease and, um, and you need to go over to their house and counsel their family. 
And so the whole discussion was, you know, well, just kind of we're going to help you through this suffering and all those normal things that you would say. But never once was it thought of, maybe we should pray. Yeah, that's a great idea. Maybe we should pray and ask God to intervene in this situation and glorify Himself and bring healing. Pretty radical thing, right? Well, I believe that's what God wants us to do, is to believe and expect the divine to enter into our life every day, every situation. Some of you like history. And Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States, one of the founding fathers. I like Thomas Jefferson because he, he had a vast library which was extremely rare in his day because books were quite expensive. And in his day, he had over 7,000 volumes in his library, just a few more than I have, Sherry. Uh, And so he had this expansive library. In fact, he said this wonderful quote. He says, I can't live without books. He loved, he was an intellect. He was a, he had had a vast mind and he was a, a, a genius who was certainly one of the individuals God used in the founding of our nation. And in 1812, in the War of 1812, the, when we had a little war and skirmish with the British again, the, at that time they were establishing a library of Congress and it was in the Capitol in that time period and the British tried to burn down the Capitol. They weren't quite successful, but one of the things they totally burned down was this growing library of Congress. There's like over 50 million books in the Library of Congress today and billions of of microfish and you name it, uh, that's today. But at that time, it was just kind of getting off the ground. So the British tried to burn down the Library of Congress and all the books were destroyed. And so the government bought Thomas Jefferson's library that became kind of the, the seed of, the, of this reinvigorated library. But there's one book in Jefferson's library that he put together. And it's called the Jefferson Bible. And what Thomas Jefferson did, remember he was a great intellect. He, was, he, he, he looked at life. Uh, I mean, when we talk about sometimes the founding fathers as Christians, we need to kind of clarify that because they're not necessarily Christian the way we think of it. They were more in a general Christian moral philosophy. But Thomas Jefferson was a, what, we, what is called a deist, D-E-I-S-T, and a deist essentially believes in, and affirms that there is a, a God, but he has created the earth and given it laws and a certain order, and he's not directly involved in the earth. They're not saying they're atheists, but that God created, but he created the earth with natural laws, and, 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 and he just kind of like wound up a clock, put it down, and he's gone to the Bahamas. He's gone. He's gone on a permanent vacation. So he's not really directly involved in the earth. Thomas Jefferson really appreciated the teachings of Jesus. He really respected the moral code that Jesus taught. And so what he did, he took a razor and and and, uh, some paper, and he went through the Gospels and took a razor and any area that was a true that spoke about miracles that Jesus in John turned water into wine, healed the blind. He just cut them out. And all he pasted in the pages 
of this book that he accumulated was just the teachings of Jesus. Anything that having to do with miracles or supernatural, he just kind of cut that out and left that up, just tossed it because he didn't believe in that. But he did like the moral teachings. So when he came, I guess, to the Gospel of John, Lazarus was still in the tomb in his book, in his Jefferson's Bible. That's the reason it's called Jefferson's Bible. Jesus was left on the cross, no resurrection, because that's supernatural. He couldn't buy into that. Now, we might never take a razor to Scripture and cut out the miraculous, but do we do it practically? We just cut it out. We just don't. It really doesn't factor in much to our belief system. We tend to create a vision of God that's reflective of our own life. We can't do anything about our problems, so why can God do anything about our problems? And we just kind of accept the status quo. In our Wednesday night's study on the Holy Spirit, one of the key verses that is a part of our study. I'm going to have you put that verse of Scripture on the screen. John 14, 12. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. He says greater works. So I don't think Jesus is pulling our leg. I don't think he's just kidding with us. There's something very profound there that almost kind of sounds, you know, heresy. What do you mean greater works? Now, don't mistake this fact. Only God does the miraculous. Only God does the miracles. But every miracle, and Sean alluded to this, every miracle has a human component that God in His sovereignty has chosen to work in. He uses individuals and He uses our will and our choices in the operation and fulfillment of the miraculous. A couple of examples in the Old Testament. When in, in Joshua chapter 3, children of Israel, they crossed over. Joshua's leading them. They crossed over into the promised land that God had given them. And yet the Bible says that the priests were required to first step into the river first in order to make the way possible. Could God have done it without their help? Of course He could. Could, God have, could Jesus have healed and done any of these miracles without the participation of any of these people in the uh, Gospel of John? Of course He could have. In fact, some of them, He did. He didn't even have to have their faith or their acknowledgement. But in often cases, He uses our participate. We call that faith, our exercise of faith to believe. Another story in Joshua is God told him to march around the walled city of, of Jericho seven times. Could God have brought down the walls the first time? Yep. Could he have done it the second time? Yep. Could he have done it if they didn't walk around at all? Yep. Seven times. I don't know about you, but about the fifth time, I'd be like, whose idea was this? Jim, I'm tired. I'm hungry. How many times? Jim says, seven times. What if they had bailed 
the sixth time and just said, all right, this is crazy. This is not going to happen. Sometimes we bail out too early, don't we? James 1, we learn that God uses trials, situations in our life to draw out faith. So, here's a radical idea. Instead of running from our issues, maybe we should run into our issues because it's at that cross-section of where we meet God in the most dramatic way. Counterintuitive, the way we like to do it. Everybody wants a miracle. We just don't want to be in a situation where we need one. Right? But that's the way God works. There's two things that snag us up. I saw pictures of Stetson and his fish that he caught yesterday, and it's been a while. Some of you like to fish, but one of the things that when you fish and you're around, well, any, anywhere, that sometimes your lines get snagged up. You get, they get, you know, they get hung up. And there's two things that snag us when we begin to believe and talk about this idea of miracles. Is first of all, miracles aren't logical. Miracle, by definition, violates natural laws. Now, I know you think because you got a parking place in front of Publix, <laughs> you think that's a miracle. It's not. Now, maybe Walmart on Saturday morning, I know it's a miracle. No. It's not a miracle, okay? A miracle just is something that is not logically explained. It's clearly a divine intervention into a situation. I know, and you know, there are scam artists that like to perform and pretend, and, and, and I've been in those meetings, and does that mean God doesn't? No, it, but again, there are those out there. But just because there's the false should never, ever make us go the other direction where we just don't believe any at all. So, doubt. But within that doubt, we need discernment. We need to be able to size up whether what's true and what's not true. Discernment is filtering out what is false and what is true. And how do we do that? We, we get discernment by the filter of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. This is our filter when we begin to talk about and believe the miraculous. Skepticism. It's easy to get skeptical. And one of the things that causes us to be skeptical is kind of the second area that snags us, and that's disappointment. But you don't know. I have prayed and I believe for such and such. I prayed for a miracle and it didn't happen. And so we take that disappointment, we don't become atheists, we don't reject God, but we just kind of pull back from really engaging and really believing that God really can do anything. We believe it in theory, but in practicality, we just don't quite... In uh, the Grave Robber book, Mark Batterson tells a, a story that's relevant to this point. He tells a story of this Swiss psychologist who was uh, uh, meeting with a patient who had no short-term memory. 
And so when the patient would come into the office, they would customarily always shake their hands and greet one another. And, and one day, he decided he was going to do a little experiment. And when the patient came in, he had a little pen in his hand, a little needle. And he just gently pricked the person's hand when they went to shake it. And naturally, the person pulled back, right? Ten minutes later, they didn't remember that happening. But every time that person came into the office, they would not extend their hand. They couldn't explain why. They just knew something happened, and they pulled back. Sometimes disappointment in God's answer into our life. We we really can't explain it, but there's just something we pull back. We We don't know why. But over time, we've just kind of pulled back an expectancy for God to work in our life. Disappointment is like that pinprick. And so the next seven weeks, we're going to look at these miracles in John's gospel. And I want us to, every week, look at them and not just go down history, memory lane. Oh, that's a nice story, because we tend to do that. We think, oh, oh yeah, Pastor, that, that, that's good. That's good back then. But that's not, there's no connection to my life today. No, there is absolute connection because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's very much alive. And we just saw that verse, greater works. He wants to do greater things in our life. And what we've been learning on Wednesday, it's better to have Jesus inside of you than beside of you. That's why he said, it's better that I go so I can send the Holy Spirit to be inside of you. And what we want to do is we want faith, real genuine Bible faith, to be stirred as we look at these seven miracles in the Gospel of John. We want our faith to be aroused in such a way that we believe that God can do the impossible. Not just some fantasy, but that we really, when we pray, we're believing that God can actually intervene. And yes, God is sovereign. He will operate and do it according to His will, not because you make certain demands. I know that's kind of a popular theology that's out there. In fact, there's one booklet by one famous uh, individual through the uh, years gone by. It's called Write Your Own Ticket with God. You don't write your own ticket with God. He gives you the ticket of what you're to do. You don't demand. But there's a difference between demanding and believing and expecting because He invites us. He invites us to do that. Jesus said, in fact, one of the things I love about the Gospel of John is that the Gospel of John, the whole book, 21 chapters, is designed to cause us, to cause the reader to have a greater faith in Christ. John said this at the end in chapter 20, verse 31. He said, these things are written so that you may believe. Things are written. Everything that he had written before, he had a purpose. He wasn't just kind of published his random journal of events in Jesus' life. No, he had an intent and purpose from the very first word. Of course, the Holy Spirit breathed upon his intent. He had an intent, and he said in chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written, everything that I've written in the past of these chapters, these things are written so that you may believe, that's his point, 
so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So the very intent of the Gospel of John has a built-in promise, just like Revelation. Blessed are those who read these words. There's a blessing when you read the book of Revelation. By the way, John, by the Holy Spirit, wrote that too. He liked to build these little devices in there that the Holy Spirit says, if you read these, if you look at these, I'm going to cause faith to stir in your life. So that's what we want to do. So what's the takeaway this morning? Let's look at, put that last slide up for me. Don't miss the miracle. That's what we want to remind ourselves today. Don't miss the miracle. And here, here's the takeaway. Missing the miraculous in Jesus' life will cause us to miss the miracles God wants to perform in our life. We need to pay attention. Is there anybody here that has myopia? Who has myopia? One, two. That's it. So I don't know what myopia is. How many of you are nearsighted? Me. You're all a bunch of fuzzballs out there. Now, I don't need glass. I can read perfectly fine without my glasses. We suffer from spiritual myopia. We are so focused on what's going on around us. We have no vision of the big picture of what God's up to. This is my father's work. He didn't redeem us just so we could occupy a seat for an hour and a half on Sunday. He saved us. He redeemed us so He would extend His glory and His purpose in our life and that the glory of God would be seen upon the earth. How? Through imperfect vessels that He has sovereignly chosen before the foundation of the world to bring His glory through. What's the holdup? Not with Him. Not with him, with me. Don't miss the miracle. I better put my glasses on again. Don't miss the miracle. Missing the miraculous in Jesus' life will cause us to miss the miracles God wants us to perform in our own life. We're going to prepare ourselves to take communion in just a moment. Sean, uh, one of our elders, is going to come and lead us in that. But listen to this before you get distracted. The single greatest miracle that Jesus Christ ever did was the forgiveness of sin. The single greatest miracle that Jesus Christ ever did was the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sin was made possible through the crucifixion and resurrection of the sinless Son of God. And that miracle, that miracle is available to anyone, anytime, any place. No conditions except belief. That's it. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. 
He does not come into judgment, but has, get this, has passed from death to life. The greatest miracle that Jesus will ever do in your life is to save you from your sin. And by the way, it's the only miracle that we must, we must experience if we want to spend eternity with God. It's the only miracle that we must experience if we want to spend eternity with God. We need that miracle. We must experience that miracle. The miracle of Jesus, the miracle of salvation, it's not, it's not the finish line. It's where everything, it's the baseline. Everything flows from what God has done in Christ to redeem us to Himself. When we take communion, we're celebrating that miracle this morning.